And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. If you're thinking that it's about time for Tratcast number 30, you are entirely correct. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the traditional Roman Catholic podcast that tells it like it is. And that means we are not afraid to say we are sedevacantists. In other words, we party like it's 1958. Originally, I was going to begin this show with something else, but what do you know? Breaking news out of Vatican City. This past Wednesday, April 28th, the man who calls himself Pope Francis uttered a little bit of heresy at his general audience. What's one more at this point? He referred to our blessed Lord as a, quote, divine human person, unquote. Now, the infallible Catholic dogma is that our Lord is a divine person only, not a divine human person. Now, you might say, well, wait wait a minute. Is our Lord not both God and man? Yes, he is. That is, in his divine person are hypostatically united the eternal divine nature and the created human nature. So he is one person, a divine person, who has two natures, one human one divine. That is the ancient Catholic dogma revealed by God. But apparently that is not good enough for Jorge Bergoglio, the man currently playing Pope. And of course, for him, that wasn't even the first time using that term, divine human person, in reference to our Lord. He'd used it before at least once on December 30th, 2015, also at a general audience. Now, could that have been simply a mistake? An oversight? Hmm, Yeah, I think that's possible. Perhaps not terribly likely, but possible. But then that's just speculation. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The result is the same. He spoke heresy, and that heresy has been broadcast on YouTube and published on the Vatican website for the whole world to see. The Catholic dogma that Jesus Christ has a divine nature and a human nature united in one single divine person is clearly taught 
in any dogmatic theology textbook, for example, in Father Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, where we read, quote, The dogma asserts that there is in Christ a person who is the divine person of the Logos, the Word, and two natures which belong to the one divine person, unquote. And that's from page 144 of the popular 10 books reprint edition of 1974. And this is the dogma even in the Vatican II Church. Heck, even Tim Staples of the Novus Ordo Apologetics Organization Catholic Answers agrees with us on this. In a 2018 article entitled, Is Jesus a Human Person? He writes, quote, There is only one person or subject in Christ, and that person is God. A divine person cannot change into a divine human mix, unquote. Precisely. See, the second person of the Holy Trinity is obviously a divine person, and this one divine person could not possibly become or take on another person, a human person, because then you would have two persons, two different beings, one divine, another human. Nor could the second person of the Holy Trinity transform himself, as it were, into a divine human person, as Francis termed it, because that would mean that God has changed, which is impossible. It's a heresy to say that God can change. He is immutable. Now, for those who think that this is really not a big deal, you know, divine person, human person, the human divine person, what's the difference? Let me remind you that a single letter, a single iota can make the difference between the true faith and heresy. There was once a controversy in church history over a single letter, over an iota, which is the Greek letter for I. That was the so-called homoousion controversy, and it goes back to the 4th century, where that single letter made all the difference between Christ being God or merely being like God in his essence. In the show notes for this episode, you can find a link to where the Catholic Encyclopedia discusses that whole issue. And you can find the show notes for this episode on the official Tradcast webpage at tradcast.org. Simply scroll down to episode number 30 and click on that, and it'll take you to that. So, Actually, it's funny, but uh, that is the perfect segue now into what was going to be my uh, first story here today, and that is the release of a new book about some of France's many heresies and errors. It's roughly 440 pages in length and was released on March 8th, and I figure that many people probably haven't heard about it yet. It's called Defending the Faith Against Present Heresies, Letters and Statements Addressed to Pope Francis, the Cardinals, and the Bishops with a Collection of Related Articles and Interviews. Now, to be clear, this is not a Sede Vacantist book. 
Its editors are John Lamond and Claudio Pierantoni, uh, both of them well-known recognize and resist traditionalists, meaning they oppose Francis and his theological junkyard, but nevertheless insist on acknowledging him to be the true pope of the Catholic Church and vicar of Christ. Now, that scenario, a valid pope teaching dangerous errors and heresies in his magisterium, and nevertheless being the true pope and therefore the teacher of all Christians and the rule of faith for the entire church, that scenario is such a blatant contradiction that the people who take this position have no choice but to abandon, at least implicitly, what the church teaches about the papacy and the magisterium in her traditional doctrine. But then, of course, that means that they're not really traditionalists. And so that's why we like to call them semi-traditionalists or pseudo-traditionalists. They think of themselves as genuine traditionalists, of course, but when it comes to the Catholic tradition on the papacy, they reject that, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, because Francis just doesn't fit the bill. We say the Vacantes take a different approach, one that is consistent with Catholic doctrine, and that is, we affirm the true teaching and instead reject Francis. Because although it is possible that a man claimed to be Pope who isn't, it is not possible that the perennial Catholic teaching on the papacy be false. Now, that's it in a nutshell. Of course, it's all a bit more complicated than that, and there are nuances and, and so forth, but that's the long and the short of it. Anyway, this new book, Defending the Faith Against Present Heresies, contains the full text of the famous dubia of the Novus Ordo Cardinals Braunmüller, Burke, Kafara, and Meissner. It also contains the filial correction that was issued in 2017 and four other statements and things against Francis and his teachings that you may recall were issued over the years, all of which predictably accomplished absolutely nothing. Why? Because as long as Francis is acknowledged to be the Pope, he wins. Which is not surprising, considering that the Pope as such is a monarch. He is the highest Catholic authority on earth, and he is subject to no one and can be judged by no one. That's how it works in the Catholic Church. So if you think that you can challenge Francis or force him to do something while recognizing him as Pope, you're quite mistaken. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, look at it. What does Francis do with undesirable circumstances? He ignores them. Out of the four Novus Ordo Cardinals who submitted the dubia in 2016, the dubia are requests for doctrinal clarification regarding what is taught in the exhortation Amoris Laetitia, out of those four cardinals, two have already died. Francis will just ignore the matter until the problem goes away all by itself. And he can get away with it, because the secular and church media are on his side, at least for the most part. So what? if some dozen prelates or scholars issue some accusation or correction against Francis, he'll ignore it. 
And while the semi-trad and conservative bloggers and media outlets are busy reporting and commenting on it, Francis just keeps going. He keeps making bad appointments. He keeps writing bad documents. He keeps calling bad synods. He keeps making bad laws. He keeps giving bad speeches and sermons, and so on. That's what he's been doing, and quite effectively. So, while the semi-trads are trying so hard to do a good thing by proving his teachings to be false and sometimes even heretical, it's ultimately just a big distraction because they cannot win for as long as they accord him the very status that gives him all his destructive power, namely the papacy. Anyway, in the show notes, we're including a link to this book, and we're also linking our extensive analysis of the open letter accusing Francis of heresy that the Semi-Trads released back in 2019. Our analysis makes a very powerful case, well-documented, against the convoluted resistance theology that these people have been using. And, spoiler alert, I'm going to give you now a one-sentence summary of the entire piece. The signatories of the open letter used heretical theology to ask heretics to accuse their pope of heresy. Yeah, no wonder that didn't go anywhere. All right, let's go ahead and uh, look at some objections against the Sedevacana's position now and uh, formulate a response. One objection that I've seen come up is, if the Catholic Church was so robust and the faith was so strong before Vatican II, then how come so many people went along with the modernist revolution? Why did so many people fall for it? Now, that's a good question to ask, but I think it has a very clear and fairly simple answer. Because the Catholic faith demands submission to the Pope, and all the changes came from someone who appeared to be the Pope. That is what made the revolution so successful. They had to put in a false Pope that would be recognized as the true one, and that's exactly what they did. Now, it is a dogma of the Catholic faith that the Pope has a primacy of jurisdiction over each and every Catholic. In his encyclical Quanta Cora of 1864, Pope Pius IX was adamant that submission to the Pope cannot be reduced merely to the acceptance of dogmatic definitions. Here's what he said, quote, nor can we pass over in silence the audacity of those who, not enduring sound doctrine, contend that without sin and without any sacrifice of the Catholic profession, assent and obedience may be refused to those judgments and decrees of the apostolic see whose object is declared to concern the church's general good and her rights and discipline, so only it does not touch the dogmata of faith and morals." But no one can be found not clearly and distinctly to see and understand how grievously this is opposed to the Catholic dogma of the full power given from God by Christ our Lord himself to the Roman pontiff of feeding, ruling, and guiding the universal church. Unquote. That's paragraph 5 of the encyclical Quanta Cora. 
And this was taught dogmatically at the First Vatican Council in 1870. Quote, if anyone thus speaks that the Roman pontiff has only the office of inspection or direction, but not the full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church, not only in things which pertain to faith and morals, but also in those which pertain to the discipline and government of the church spread over the whole world, or that he possesses only the more important parts, but not the whole plenitude of, of this supreme power, or that this power of his is not ordinary and immediate, or over the churches altogether and individually, and over the pastors and the faithful altogether and individually, let him be anathema." Unquote. And that's found in chapter 3 of the dogmatic constitution, Pastor Eternus. You can find that in Denzinger, 1831. So yeah, that is how the modernists were able to pull it off. That is why so many people accepted the revolution. It came from the very top. It came from the apparent popes, starting with John XXIII. And that's important to remember, in fact, because sometimes people will make it seem like it was all a matter of disobedient lower clergy that introduced abuses and interpreted the council in, in a wrong way and, and so on. You know, some of that is no doubt true, but that's ultimately not how the revolution was imposed. It came from the top. It was John XXIII who had the idea for an ecumenical council and who was very imprudent and arrogant about getting it to start as early as 1962 when his assistants were telling him that there was no way they could get everything prepared in time for it to start by 63 even. He didn't care. He wanted his counsel. And then look at the people he appointed. Alongside many good and orthodox prelates, he rehabilitated and appointed a lot of bad theologians, people who'd been censored, who'd been silenced, who were already under investigation by the Holy Office for suspicion of heresy. You know, men like Joseph Ratzinger, Eve Congar, and Karl Rahner. That was John XXIII doing that. Of course, the funny thing is, it was John XXIII himself, as Angelo Roncalli, who was one of those marked suspect of heresy by the Holy Office. So that fits, actually. And you can find that confirmed in, in any decent biography on, on John XXIII, okay? I mean, it's no secret. It's, it's definitely uh, not something disputed, even. So don't forget that. The entire mess we're in was the work of the false popes that came on the scene in 1958 and after. It was their decisions, their council, their magisterium, their canon law, their curia that imposed all of those things. In 1960, two years before the council even began, John XXIII had already instituted what was then called the Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity. So he was very eager to kick off the ecumenical agenda even before the council even made ecumenism official for this new church. Because remember, before John XXIII, there was no ecumenism for a Catholic. I mean, not what is known as ecumenism today. The only type of ecumenism, if you want to call it that, 
that was acceptable before John the 23rd was that of bringing non-Catholics into the Catholic Church by converting them, by showing them that their heretical sects were false and that the Catholic Church alone is the true Church, founded by our blessed Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, for example, Pope Pius XI wrote in 1928, quote, The union of Christians can only be promoted by promoting the return to the one true Church of Christ of those who are separated from it, for in the past they have unhappily left it. Unquote. That's from the encyclical Martalium Animos, paragraph 10. And to clarify, the reason Pius XI says that Protestants have left the Catholic Church, even though, of course, he is well aware that most Protestants alive at the time had probably been raised in their heretical sects and didn't start out as Catholics and then converted to Protestantism. The reason Pius XI says that they left the Catholic Church is that they are validly baptized. Let me just briefly explain this, because there's a lot of confusion about this in our day, especially because Vatican II muddied the waters and actually taught error on this. First, the true Catholic teaching is the following, and I'm just going to quote from Monsignor Gerard Van Noort's book, Christ's Church, the revised English edition published in 1957. Please bear with me here because this is a longer quote, but it tells you all you need to know. So that's why I want to quote it in full. Monsignor Van Noort, Christ's Church, pages 245 and 246. Quote, From the fact that baptism is properly the cause of engrafting into the church, two facts follow. A. All validly baptized babies even if they were baptized by heretics and in the midst of dissident Christian sects, are members of the Roman Catholic Church. The baptismal character conjoins them not to any sect but to the Church of Christ. Moreover, since such children are incapable of rational activity, human acts, they cannot cut themselves off from the Church by acts of heresy or schism. Neither can they be separated by the sword of excommunication, for excommunication presumes guilt. Such children, consequently, remain members of the church until, after reaching the age of reason, they separate themselves from the church by entering into heresy or schism publicly. And if in so doing they act in good faith, they are not deprived of all relationship with the Catholic Church. Still, they are not Catholics. They have severed, even though blamelessly, one of the bonds requisite for actual membership in the church. Should they become converted in mature life, it is often a comfort to them to know they are not betraying an ancestral spiritual heritage, but simply returning to their father's house. B. All validly baptized persons always, objectively, remain subject to the church. Here it is important to distinguish between being subject to the church and being a member of the church. The former term has a far wider connotation and extension. Consequently, though all its members are subject to the church, not all its subjects are members. 
So, for example, a visitor in a foreign land is temporarily subject to the laws of that land. Again, a soldier who is a deserter is legitimately tried and punished by the army authorities. Yet neither the visitor nor the soldier is, strictly speaking, a member of the society to which he is subject. Similarly, even though public heretics, public schismatics, and total excommunicates are not actually members of the church, they are never completely deprived of all relationship to the church. For the baptismal character, once received by these people, is indelible. And although they prevent its unifying force by their own actions, which considered purely abstractly and objectively are evil, they do not thereby destroy that character. That is why, as long as they live by law and obligation, they belong to the church and are subject to its jurisdiction, even though they may be in invincible ignorance on both counts. They are like sheep wandering outside the sheepfold, whether they fled from it of their own accord or were put out of it for a time because of some disease, they are not exempted from the power of the shepherd. Unquote. So that is the traditional pre-Vatican II teaching about the consequences of a valid baptism received by people who are not Catholics. And that is the reason why Pope Pius XI, and all true popes really, treat Protestants and other validly baptized non-Catholics who profess to be Christians as having left the church and needing to return to her, even if they spent their entire lives in a Protestant sect and never left the church in the sense in which that is usually understood. So anyway, the traditional teaching is very clear. It's not confusing. It's not wishy-washy. It's pretty black and white. So let me elaborate a little bit here and point out that there are four types of non-Catholics. Non-Catholics are either infidels, by which we mean people who have never been baptized, or they're schismatics, by which we mean baptized people who, although they adhere to the true faith, nevertheless refuse to submit to the lawful pope or refuse to maintain communion with other members of the church. Or they're heretics, by which we mean baptized people who profess to be Christians but reject one or more Catholic dogmas. And lastly, there is the category of apostates, by which we mean baptized people who have totally abandoned the faith, either in that they no longer even claim to be followers of Christ and either become atheists or agnostics or join another religion such as Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, etc., or embrace a heresy that completely undoes all of God's revelation, such as modernism, naturalism, or indifferentism. So you can guess which of these categories Pope Francis falls into, right? He is, of course, an apostate. And if that wasn't obvious before February 4th, 2019, it was definitely obvious then, because that's the day he signed the Declaration on Human Fraternity with the Muslim Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Ahmad Al-Tayyib, which we've linked in the show notes. And what does that declaration say? 
It says that God wills there to be a diversity of religions in the same way as he wills there to be different sexes, races, colors, and languages. I mean, if you affirm that, there is nothing left of Catholicism. If God wants a diversity of religions, then Jesus Christ is not God. Then religion really has no meaning. Then God did not reveal anything, and all religions are false. Anyway, the point being here that Protestants are not Catholics. They're heretics. They're not members of the true church established by Christ. And if they want to be part of the true church, then they must abandon their errors and convert to the only church established by Jesus Christ, the Holy Roman Church, which is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So that's the traditional Catholic teaching. It was all crystal clear for 1900 years, but then came Vatican II. That abominable council threw a monkey wrench into it all by saying that all who are validly baptized and profess faith in Christ are members of his body, members of the body of Christ on account of their baptism, regardless of whether they're Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans, Methodists, whatever. If they're baptized and believe in Christ, they're members of his body, according to Vatican II. This is what the decree on ecumenism states, quote, For men who believe in Christ and have been truly baptized are in communion with the Catholic Church, even though this communion is imperfect. All who have been justified by faith in baptism are members of Christ's body, and have a right to be called Christian, and so are correctly accepted as brothers by the children of the Catholic Church. Unquote. That's Vatican II, Decree Unitatis Red Integratio, number three, promulgated by Paul VI in 1964. So Vatican II introduces the idea that you can be a member of Christ's body and yet not be a member of the Catholic Church. That is in direct contradiction to Pope Pius XII's teaching that, quote, the mystical body of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church are one and the same thing, unquote. That was taught in the 1950 encyclical Humani Generis, number 27. But according to Novus Ordo doctrine, you can be a member of the body of Christ without being a Catholic. You're just in partial or imperfect communion with the Catholic Church and the Roman Pontiff. Do you see how that wreaks havoc on everything? Now, why did Vatican II do that? Why did that ungodly council change the teaching on the church and on church membership and all that? Quite simply, because this was necessary for ecumenism. Vatican II needed to find a way to open up the Catholic Church to the ecumenical movement. And of course, there was no way to do that with the traditional ecclesiology. Right? The participants in the ecumenical movement won't accept you if you insist that you alone are right 
and they're all wrong and they need to join you because you're the true church, right? That's not, that's not going to fly. So Vatican II had to find a way to get the foot in the door somehow, and that's how they did it. And so notice, this isn't just a difference in disciplinary approach. This opening on ecumenism is grounded in a doctrinal change. And that is why you find that change doctrine in the Council's Dogmatic Constitution Lumen Gentium, number eight, where it says that the church Christ founded subsists in the Catholic Church, as opposed to the prior teaching that the church Christ founded is the Catholic Church. And you can read more about that in our post entitled Christian Unity Without Catholicism. Francis Spew's Ecumenical Bilge at General Audience, which is linked in the show notes. So remember that next time you hear that Vatican II is all just pastoral, right? No, it's not. And besides, pastoral is not the opposite of dogmatic or doctrinal. So the two aren't mutually exclusive anyway. I guess you could say that pastoral refers more to action, to what is to be done, and dogmatic refers to what is to be believed. But it goes without saying that the two must obviously be in sync with each other, since action flows from belief. The church's actions are in accordance with her beliefs and teachings. At the very least, her actions cannot contradict what she teaches and believes. So don't fall for this pastoral council nonsense. If Vatican II came from a true pope, then it is salutary, safe, binding, and orthodox. If, on the other hand, you recognize it's a theological junkyard, then it's absolutely certain that it didn't come from a true pope. This isn't that hard to figure out, is it? So it's clear that, at least on ecumenism, Vatican II abandoned perennial church doctrine. And of course, no one has been more emphatic on that than Jorge Bergoglio, right? Pope Francis. He called it a great sin against ecumenism to convert someone from the Eastern Orthodox to Catholicism. That happened in 2016. Well, it's nice to know that Bergoglio does believe in sin, isn't it? And now you know how the Vatican II revolution was successful despite its craziness, because it came from false popes that appeared to be true popes and were accepted by most as such. How is that possible? How is it possible that virtually the whole church accepts false popes as true popes? I hope to discuss that at some length in a future blog post. For now, let me just say that I think there's no quick and easy answer to that. And at least for the time being, perhaps we'll just have to content ourselves with the knowledge that no matter what the explanation is as to how that is possible, we know they're false popes because by their magisterium, they've led the people who adhere to it into abandoning the Catholic faith, into rejecting the Roman Catholic religion as it was known until the death of Pope Pius XII in 1958. And such a thing is impossible 
for true popes to do because it is tantamount to a defection of the church. Well, look, if it were possible, there'd be no point to the papacy because Christ instituted it precisely so that the faithful would always have a sure guide to safely follow in matters of faith and morals. By clinging to the Pope, the faithful can rest assured that they are with the true church and the true faith, that they are with Christ. And that is what distinguishes the Holy See from all the other dioceses in the world. Because although any and all bishops and dioceses could fall from the faith and could defect into heresy or schism, the Roman See can never do that, for as long as there is a true Pope reigning that is. And no, I'm not just saying that. This follows clearly from the perennial papal teaching about the papacy. We've got that linked for you in the show notes. It's a whole collection of quotes straight from the papal magisterium over centuries. It's not complete, of course, but uh, some of the best possible excerpts are found there. And those are teachings you never hear quoted from the non-state of Arcanist traditionalists, from those who claim to be keeping the old faith but accept Francis and his five predecessors as true popes. <laughs> and I think I know why. It doesn't fit. The Vatican II popes don't fit the Catholic teaching on the papacy because they're not popes. So here's a quick rule of thumb for you. That'll come in handy. If Francis is not the rule of faith, if Francis is not keeping the gates of hell from prevailing, then he's not the Pope. Because that's what a true Pope does. Not just what he's supposed to do, it's what he actually does. Yes, even Pope Honorius. You can check the show notes for a link on that. <sighs> wow. Time flies. Why do I always talk so much? Well, let's get to a second objection that I hear a lot, and that is that Sedevacantism must be false because there are Eucharistic miracles in the Vatican II Church. The short answer is, no, there aren't. But you probably want to hear the longer answer. Well, the longer answer is this. First, the Catholic Church is always very skeptical with regard to the claims of genuine miracles. The Church does not rush to accept alleged miracles as true because it would be highly imprudent to do so. Because imagine if the Church rashly recognized something as miraculous, and then later someone discovers that it really wasn't a miracle, that there's a perfectly normal explanation for it. Well, the Church would lose all her credibility. See, nothing is served, nothing is gained by rushing to accept as authentic a reported miracle. And so only after long, careful investigation, and only after all other possible explanations have been definitively exhausted, does the Church ever pronounce a miracle as authentic. And even then, the Church only permits belief in the miracle and doesn't require it. And yet, nowadays, people are very quick to accept something as miraculous simply because 
They've seen it on TV, they've seen it on YouTube, or they've seen photos on some blog, or some person they trust has told them that there's been a miracle. That's very imprudent. Our first reaction to reported miracle should always be one of doubt and skepticism. If we lived in, say, 1946 instead of 2021, if there were what appeared to be a miracle, we would submit the case to the local bishop. And, I don't know, possibly will be brought to the Holy See for a judgment. But the exact process doesn't matter here. The point is that it is for the church to judge whether a true miracle has occurred or not. And we see that, for example, even with the miracle of the sun at Fatima on October 13, 1917. That was witnessed by somewhere between 50,000 and 70,000 people. And yet the church didn't immediately accept it. It took 13 years until 1930 for the church to officially declare it worthy of belief. So remember that. The church herself does not rush to accept claims of miracles, and so we shouldn't either. Okay, Don't jump to conclusions when you hear someone say there's been a miracle. Don't believe it. Now, in our day, submitting a purported miracle to the church for authentication is not an option, so the safest thing to do is simply to ignore any reported miracle. That's always entirely safe because we already know everything we need to know to save our souls, right? I mean, we have that in traditional church teaching. We have everything we need to know in our traditional catechisms. And we know that's correct. We know that's true. We know we have to follow that. So, you know, in that sense, there's really no need for some private revelation or miracle. Of course, some people will say now that you should just submit your alleged miracle to the Novus Ordo Church because that is the true church. But since that's the very issue under discussion, it's not a legit argument. You can't have the Novus Ordo Church authenticate a miracle and then use that miracle as proof that the Novus Ordo Church is true. Right? That's a circular argument. First, you use the new church to prove the miracle, and then you use the miracle to prove the new church. Can't do it. Now, the ultimate author of any genuine miracle, obviously, is God. We know that the Catholic Church is God's church, and therefore we know that her teachings are true. But that means that if anything now contradicts this true body of doctrine that we've received from the church, then it cannot be from God. And whether you're conservative Novus Ordo or Sedevacantist or in between, all of us agree that until Pope Pius XII's death in 1958, what was taught and believed then is indisputably true. Because if it was true then, it has to be true now. So when the Vatican II Church then comes along with all these new ideas and practices that are repugnant to the Catholic religion of 1958 and before, then we know that we must dismiss any claims about miracles in that new religion. Because any such miracles cannot be real, because God would have to be the author of them, and then God would be contradicting himself, because he would be giving credence to that new and false religion. So, 
While we do not have access to the church's judgment now on any particular alleged miracle in our day, what we can do, first of all, is look at who or what is being served by that claimed miracle. For example, a Eucharistic miracle at the new Mass would obviously imply that God approves of the new Mass. Impossible. It would also mean that God endorses the Vatican II Church. Likewise, impossible. That's the church that continually spits him in the face with ecumenism, interreligious dialogue, saying that Protestant sects are used as means of salvation, that God wants there to be different religions, human fraternity is the way to go instead of Christ the King, and so on and so forth. And here we're talking about the official teachings and the official acts of the Novus Ordo Church. So, all that is enough to know that any purported miracle that would confirm and authenticate this garbage must be false. Now, that is not to say that the people who are reporting such supposed Novus Ordo miracles are all malicious deceivers or anything of the kind. They might be, but they could also be sincere. So, this is not a judgment on any individuals, right? We're more than happy to leave that to God. It's not about judging people. It's about making a judgment about the event that is claimed to be miraculous. So, the long and the short of it is, just because someone shouts miracle, and there's something that looks miraculous at first sight, and you can't explain it, doesn't mean there's a real miracle there. And remember, too, that the Eastern Orthodox, for example, claim to have a miracle of the holy fire in Jerusalem the day before Easter every year. But God cannot contradict himself. There's no way he could establish the Catholic Church as his church and then work a miracle in favor of the Eastern Orthodox religion, because that's a schismatic and heretical religion, so it's impossible. And likewise with the Vatican II Church, God cannot, on the one hand, want all non-Catholics to become Catholics and be subject to the Roman pontiff, and then also, on the other hand, endorse Vatican II ecumenism. God always remains the same. He doesn't change. The God whose church taught for 1900 years that non-Catholics must become Catholic can't now all of a sudden approve of a church that says, no, that isn't so. So, with all of that, it's clear that we ought not to pay any attention to these purported Eucharistic miracles in the Vatican II Church. If they're not miracles, what are they? Honestly, there's no need for us to explain these phenomena because we know from our adherence to the indisputably true Catholic religion that these phenomena are not miracles from God, and that's all that matters. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, St. Paul mentions that the coming of the Antichrist will be accompanied by lying wonders, and yet how many will run after the Antichrist screaming, miracle, miracle, because he'll do stuff they can't explain? There is a lot, actually, that human nature can accomplish that looks beyond the powers of nature, when in fact it isn't. You can read in Exodus chapter 7 
how Moses and Aaron worked miracles before Pharaoh, true miracles, and yet Pharaoh's magicians mimicked those miracles with their own trickery. And then, of course, there are things that demons can do that are beyond our natural capacity, but that are not impossible for angelic beings. And that's what demons are. They're fallen angels. So the mere appearance of a miracle does not mean there is a real miracle. And of course, our blessed Lord warned us himself against false miracles, against deceptive signs and wonders that will be so powerful that they would deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. And the elect are the people who actually will be saved. In St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 24 through 26, our Lord speaks about the end of the world. And here's what he says, quote, For there shall be then great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, neither shall be. And unless those days had been shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, do not believe him. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told it to you beforehand. If, therefore, they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the desert, go ye not out. Behold, he is in the closets, believe it not. Unquote. And that would be my ultimate response to the claim of Eucharistic miracles in the New Mass in the Vatican II Church. Believe it not. And now let's take a quick break. Don't go away. Tradcast. Are you a traditional Catholic homeschooling family looking for a solid curriculum? Or are you just interested in great Catholic books? Then visit stjeromelibrary.org and learn more about our extensive traditional Catholic offerings, including lesson plans and materials for preschool to grade 12. Operating since 2018, St. Jerome Library and School is run by a traditional Catholic Sidivacontist family. St. Jerome School uses both classic and original books, including works by our clergy, such as Bishop Donald Sanborn and the late Father Anthony Ciccata. Nothing should be compromised when it comes to the faith, especially not our children's education. Visit stjeromelibrary.org, that's S-T-J-E-R-O-M-E, library.org. If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. 
Aha, I knew it. I knew you were still going to be here after the break, and that's a good thing. Because there is lots more to come in this episode number 30 of Tratcast. It's Novos Ordo Watch for your ears. Except no imitations. You know, I have to chuckle when I hear Novos Ordo prelates talk about how it is such a scandal that Christians are divided and therefore we need to be ecumenical. We have an obligation to come together so we can give a credible witness to the world. I chuckle at that because these are the same people who are now saying that God wills there to be many different religions because that's diversity and it's an expression of the divine wisdom. Well, which is it? Is it a scandal that there are different religions, or is it the result of God's wisdom? Is it a problem that needs to be repaired, or does God positively want it to be this way? They can't have it both ways. All right, on to some more things here. I have to say I find it amazing how many people love to talk about how the Novus Order Church is a false church with a counter-magisterium and false shepherds and all that, and yet somehow they can't figure out that then Francis must be a false pope. Really, it's incredible. Chief among them now is Father Carlo Maria Viganò, the former Vatican nuncio, to the United States who's been blasting Francis left and right. He's still in hiding, and when he's not writing forwards to other people's books, he cranks out one message after another that gets posted on the big semi-trad websites like Catholic Family News, The Remnant 1 Peter 5, and even LifeSite, which is more of a conservative Novo Sordo site, but at this point it all kind of runs together because they're all in agreement that the current Holy Father teaches and legislates dangerous spiritual poison. And well, apparently they think that as long as dangerous spiritual poison is taught by a real Catholic Pope instead of an imposter, then the indefectibility of the church is saved. Got it. By the way, do these people ever think about what they're saying? You know, Christ instituted the papacy as the perpetual safe guide for Catholics to arrive at eternal salvation. If by loyally following the Pope, you could actually end up being led right into the mouth of the Antichrist, what would that say about Christ? It's blasphemy. Christ instituted the papacy so that we would follow the Pope, not so that we would protect the rest of the Church from the Pope. The papacy is a divine institution. It is not a human institution. Christ protects the papacy throughout history, and in our day, he protects it by keeping it from being validly occupied by apostates like Francis. The Semitrads, though, have reduced the papacy to utter meaninglessness, to the status of Protestant pastorship, where the congregation follows the pastor as long as they determine that he's teaching the biblical truth. And when they determine that he's not doing that or they can't verify it, well, then either they ignore him or they resist him or they get him removed, but they certainly don't follow him. Now, if, if that's all the papacy is, then Christ didn't establish it because then it's just a human and not a divine institution. 
and then we certainly don't need it. And here, let me say a few words about the perpetual successors argument. The First Vatican Council teaches the following in the Dogmatic Constitution Pastor Eternus, Chapter 2. Quote, What the chief of pastors and the great pastor of sheep, the Lord Jesus, established in the blessed apostle Peter for the perpetual salvation and perennial good of the church, this by the same author must endure always in the church, which was founded upon a rock and will endure firm until the end of the ages. Surely no one has doubt, rather all ages have known, that the holy and most blessed Peter, chief and head of the apostles and pillar of faith and foundation of the Catholic Church, received the keys of the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of the human race. And he up to this time and always lives and presides and exercises judgment in his successors, the bishops of the Holy See of Rome, which was founded by him and consecrated by his blood. Therefore, whoever succeeds Peter in this chair, he, according to the institution of Christ himself, holds the primacy of Peter over the whole church. Therefore, the disposition of truth remains, and blessed Peter, persevering in the accepted fortitude of the rock, does not abandon the guidance of the church which he has received. For this reason, it has always been necessary because of mightier preeminence for every church to come to the church of Rome, that is, those who are the faithful everywhere, so that in this sea, from which the laws of venerable communion emanate over all, they as members associated in one head coalesce into one bodily structure. If anyone then says that it is not from the institution of Christ the Lord himself, or by divine right, that the blessed Peter has perpetual successors in the primacy over the universal church, or that the Roman pontiff is not the successor of blessed Peter in the same primacy, let him be anathema, unquote. And you can find that in Denzinger, 1824 and 1825. Now, if you listen closely, and I know this was a lot, but if you listen closely, you saw that perpetual succession means that every legitimate pope, every Roman pontiff, every successor of St. Peter receives from Christ the exact same primacy that St. Peter had received. In other words, this primacy did not end with St. Peter, as some heretics had maintained, but is passed on perpetually until the end of time to all of his legitimate successors. That is what perpetual succession means. It does not mean that you will have a true pope at all times, that there can't be periods in church history where there is no pope. Now, Granted, the situation we're in today is a little more complicated and a little more serious than just being without a pope for a few years. And certainly Vatican I does teach that there must always be legitimate shepherds in the church until the end of time. In the prologue of Pastor Eternus, the council teaches, quote, Thus then, as he, meaning Christ, sent the apostles whom he had selected from the world for himself, as he himself had been sent by the Father, so in his church he wished the pastors and the doctors to be even to the consummation of the world." Unquote. That's Denzinger, 1821. 
The church is visible of her very essence, and this visible church is animated by an invisible principle of supernatural life with which God endowed her. And both of these elements are essential to the church, and in this manner the church will remain until the end of time. That is what Pope Leo XIII clearly teaches in his 1896 encyclical, Satis Cognitum, number three, where he writes that, quote, since the church is such by divine will and constitution, such it must uniformly remain to the end of time. If it did not, then it would not have been founded as perpetual, and the end set before it would have been limited to some certain place and to some certain period of time, both of which are contrary to the truth. The union, consequently, of visible and invisible elements, because it harmonizes with the natural order and by God's will belongs to the very essence of the church, must necessarily remain so long as the church itself shall endure." Unquote. That is the Catholic teaching, and that is what we must believe and profess. Granted, you definitely run into some difficulties as to exactly how that is playing out in our day when we've had no pope since 1958 that we know of, and Sedevacanus clergy don't even claim to have ordinary jurisdiction. And I'm not going to try to resolve that here. I only want to point out that we have to distinguish between theological difficulties and contradictions. Difficulties can be overcome, but contradictions put an end to everything. So the recognize and resist people look at this perpetual succession business and hastily conclude that since they have successors to Pope Pius Twelfth, and we don't, therefore we're contradicting the dogma of Vatican I and they're not. But that is actually false. It is true that the church must always have a way to produce a pope if one isn't reigning, at least in principle. That is because she is what's called a perfect society, which means she has been endowed by God with all the means necessary to attain the supernatural end for which she was founded by Christ. And that includes the pope as the principle of unity and the guarantor of the faith. So even if there is no pope reigning, at all times she must retain the ability to choose one, at least in theory. How the church would produce a pope in our day is another question. There are some theories floating around, but certainly in the practical order that is very difficult to envision right now. But then that's also where faith comes in, faith in what God has revealed about his church, and such faith, in order to be faith, must exclude all desire for demonstration, as the Catechism of Trent says, for it relies on the authority of God revealing. Now, what the recognized and resistors don't seem to grasp at all is the purpose for which God guarantees the perpetual succession in the primacy. Let's assume for a minute that their idea of perpetual succession were correct, and that Francis is a true pope. Can anyone tell me what the point of a perpetual succession of popes would be if someone like Francis can be one? As Vatican I says in the chapter I quoted earlier, the whole point of perpetual succession in the primacy is the perpetual salvation 
and perennial good of the church, so she would endure firm until the end of the ages, and so that the truth would remain in the church forever. So, unless Francis guarantees that, he cannot possess that primacy that is given in perpetual succession. And so it simply doesn't matter that Francis has succeeded in some way from Pius XII if he doesn't guarantee what Vatican I teaches the Pope guarantees. And of course, the same goes for the other fake popes, John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, and Benedict XVI. Who needs perpetual succession if that succession doesn't guarantee what Christ instituted the papacy to guarantee? The vacancy of the apostolic see is the only thing that can sufficiently explain the total breakdown of Catholicism since the death of Pope Pius XII. No, we can't figure out every detail about the situation. We don't exactly know how it happened or how it will be fixed, but we do know that it is the only explanation. Any other explanation must necessarily deny either the papacy or other dogmas, and that is obviously not an option. You know what? I think we need some levity here. We need a little bit of humor. All this is serious and depressing enough, and we could probably all use a little lightheartedness right now to help us keep going here. And therefore, I'm going to present to you now, long-time listeners will have heard this before, I'm going to present to you now the first ever Sedevacantist song against the Vatican II religion. It's called Vatican II, What the Heck Are You?, and is performed by an Australian bloke named Damo. Yes, we've got the necessary permission to play the song on this podcast, so it's all kosher, okay? And uh, after we've played it, of course, we'll continue with more Tratcast. Oh, and for those of you who rudely want to jump ahead now and skip this song, it's just over four minutes in length. So, here we go. John 23, when he usurped the papacy, a communistic chubby little chappy. The Masons celebrate the day Ron Carly gave the store away. It cheered them up and made them very happy. Montini, known as Paul the Sick, an evil man built like a stick, implemented lies and desolation. It must be said, the day he died, they pumped him with formaldehyde, his legacy sacramental mutilation. Oh, Vatican II, you are the great apostasy, it cannot be denied, the synthesis of all heresies, steeped in Time had upon the vacant seat, but glad to hold the top position, it is said. 
When he chose to investigate the bankers of the papal state, he wound up feeling somewhat kinda dead. Oh, Vatican too, it's easy to tell. You are not from heaven, you are straight from hell. Satan's bunch of tools, treating us like fools. Our doctrines are true, but your doctrines smell. Mr. John Paul II, an actor and a Marxist who received the mark of Shiva on his brow. Kissed the Koran and incensed Buddha, prayed with Jews, he really shouldn't to be a heretic, he showed us how. Oh Vatican II, woo woo, what the heck are you? A Protestant religion which is based on Gnosticism. We've got St. Pius Tenth, you've got Ain't Saint JP2. We will keep the old, and you can have the new. Research Ratsy, and you will find he was a V2 mastermind, ended up as Benedict Sixteen. He brought in Moldu Proprio to strike the trads another blow, now lives his final days in quarantine. Oh, Vatican II, please go hit the highway. We play by the rules, that's why we don't eat meat on Friday. Your use of hermeneutic of continuity. More modernistic dribble, just another fallacy. Nope is out to kill all faith and hope. He's living out the Vatican to dream. Encounter solidarity, buzzwords are his speciality. He takes his rock star status to extreme. Oh, Vatican II, influenced by Bugnini. Instead of wine and bread, you're using beer and linguine. You've stolen our churches. Thank you, Demo. That was Vatican II, What the Heck Are You? And uh, you can download the song for a minimal fee, I think it's less than a dollar, from True Restoration, or you can go to their website, truerestoration.org, and play it online for free anytime you like. The link to that, as always, is in our show notes. All right, now that we've had this little timeout, we can get back to business. On April 20th of this year, the so-called Archbishop, Carlo Maria Viganò, whom we mentioned earlier, released a message denouncing the Vatican's upcoming supposed health conference, which is to take place May 6th through May 8th, hosted, among others, by the so-called Pontifical Council for Culture. Among the 114 speakers at the conference, 
I kid you not, are Anthony Fauci, Chelsea Clinton, Cindy Crawford, Jane Goodall, Deepak Chopra, and other such characters. Now, no doubt these people are all very concerned about your health. So, oh, you know what? <laughs> Maybe this is a typo, and they really meant Vatican Hell Conference instead of Health Conference. Well, that would that would make more sense. Anyway, so Father Viganò writes, quote, The Holy See has deliberately renounced the supernatural mission of the Church, making itself the servant of the New World Order and Masonic globalism in an antichristic counter-magisterium, unquote. Of course, there's no question that the modernist Vatican II Church especially under Francis, is indeed not fulfilling the supernatural mission of the Catholic Church and has in fact established an anti-Christian counter-magisterium. But for heaven's sake, that's only possible because there is also an anti-pope at the helm. There is not just a fake church, but also a fake pope. How difficult can this be? This idea that the Catholic Church can abandon her divine mission seems to be gaining in popularity among the recognized and resistors. Of course, it's heresy, but that doesn't seem to bother them. At least they're not Sede Vacantis, right? So, back in 2016, Christopher Ferreira argued against Novus Ordo apologist Mark Shea that the Catholic Church had abandoned the Great Commission. Never mind that Pope Leo XIII taught in 1902 that the Church, quote, has preached the gospel and has defended it at the price of its blood, and strong in the divine assistance and of that immortality which have been promised it, it makes no terms with error, but remi remains faithful to the commands which it has received to carry the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the uttermost limits of the world and to the end of time and to protect it in its inviolable integrity, unquote. That's from Pope Leo's apostolic letter, Anum Ingressi. Ferrara, of course, tried to lawyer his way out of it, but that's not our topic now. The link to our post examining his debate with Shea is included in the notes for this episode, so you can... Uh, Click on that if you'd like more information. Another purveyor of this heretical and blasphemous idea that the Catholic Church can abandon her divinely given mission is Eric Sammons, who just recently became editor of Crisis magazine. He's just published a book entitled, I kid you not, Deadly Indifference, How the Church Lost Her Mission and How We Can Reclaim It. Now, this book is not out in hard copy yet, but an electronic version for Kindle is already available. And so I just purchased that, and I am utterly shocked at the brazen heresy and blasphemy in the title, but also in the conclusion of the book, where Sammons writes that the church, the bride of Christ, has had her head turned. She's forgotten her royal standing. She's cast aside and abdicated and forgotten her mission. Yes, these are verbatim the terms he uses. He stops just short of saying that the bride has become a harlot, but he clearly does make the point that the Catholic Church has defected. 
Of course, if pressed on it, I'm sure he would deny that, but that is clearly what he is communicating. And the title alone confirms it, right? The subtitle, How the Church Lost Her Mission. Now, I have to say that I fear that this notion of the church being able to go astray and abandon her mission, that this is going to become more popular and remain popular among the semi-trats for a long time to come. Uh, certainly, Vigano is going to be peddling it for the remainder of his days, I'm sure, yet always insisting, of course, that the hierarchy that is responsible for the church's defection from the faith is the true and valid hierarchy, and the chief apostate at the head of it all is naturally the legitimate vicar of Christ, even though he does not fulfill the promises that Christ gave to the papacy at all. So, in his April 20th message, Vigano speaks of, quote, the superimposition over the true church of a sect of heretical and depraved modernists who are intent on legitimizing adultery, sodomy, abortion, euthanasia, idolatry, and any perversion of the intellect and will. The true church is now eclipsed, denied, and discredited by her very pastors, betrayed even by the one who occupies the highest throne. Unquote. And yet, at the same time, he's insisting that these heretical prelates of that modernist sect are also the true and legitimate Catholic shepherds with whom you must be in communion. He believes at one and the same time that the church is indefectible, which he affirms in the same letter, but also holds that the Holy See has deliberately renounced the supernatural mission of the church in an antichrist counter-magisterium. Now, he can talk all he wants about some superimposition of a heretical sect over the Roman Church, but at the end of the day, if the Holy See has a valid Pope reigning, then the acts of the Holy See are the acts of the Pope. In Catholic doctrine, there is simply no room for Viganò's admixture of the true Church with a false Church. The Church cannot be both. Okay, she cannot be the true church and the false church, the church of God and the church of Satan or the church of the Antichrist. Okay, just like Christ cannot be God and the devil in one, just like the Messiah cannot be the Christ and the Antichrist at the same time. Now, look, I don't know what Viganò's motives are, whether he's sincere or not, but I do know that what he does is utterly deadly to souls. He says so many important, good, and true things, and he points out many injustices. He leads souls into so much light and truth, but then at the decisive crossroads, he points them in the wrong direction, and he leaves them ensnared in the devil's trap. Remember our Lord's words, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But, despite all that, there is no reason to be discouraged. Christ has not left us orphans. The Holy Ghost is always with us, and God can infuse the virtues of faith, hope, and charity wherever souls are properly disposed even apart 
from the sacraments. So if you're looking for help, for guidance, for consolation, make sure you click on the link in the show notes that is called Now What? How to Be a Real Catholic Today, and uh, also the one entitled Perfect Contrition, the Key to Heaven, especially for our times. Clearly, every day that passes makes matters more obvious. I suppose that the reason why God is allowing it to happen this way is so that everyone who takes Catholicism seriously will have every chance to see it and will therefore be without excuse. All the evidence is there, you just have to be willing to accept it. But just like 2,000 years ago, people today often do not want to admit what is right in front of their eyes because once they do, they have to act, and that might be uncomfortable. That might have undesirable consequences. But don't keep pushing it out, telling yourself that you need just one more thing, just one more piece of evidence, and then you'll draw the conclusion. As our Lord said in Luke 16.31, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead. A busy show has come to an end. Thanks for sticking around so long. If you found it worth your time, please tell others about it. Until next time, God bless you. Trap cast.